in between the majority and the filibuster, there's the supermajority. Can you talk more about where you feel like there's a legitimate decision has been made and what, you know, under what circumstances should there be majority versus supermajority kinds of decision-making in Congress? Are there, do you have a principle by which you think that could work? Um, good question. Um, you know, so I guess the first thing I'd say is it, and, um, is that the reason the filibuster persisted for so many, for so long has persisted up till now. And now it's finally, you know, it's being kind of um, winnowed down, but the reason it persisted was because a majority of senators believed it was in their interests to have it, you know, that it served the, you know. Um, so I think it's, it's just important to note that because it's like, you know, we might think that it's due to some sort of principled view of how institutions should operate. Whereas Greg and my argument is basically for most senators throughout congressional history, up until really, I would say 2013, a majority of senators believe their interest as individuals, including their interest in being powerful members of our political system, were better served by the supermajority rule and the filibuster than by majority rule. So I, I sort of, um, I'm skeptical of arguments for the filibuster based on some sort of principled supermajoritarianism. Um, I and and I also and as a general matter, I guess the one way I would think about it is that you know basically what supermajoritarianism does is build in a status quo bias, right? That means that to keep something, you need less than it's really minorities rule in terms of keeping the status quo. Majorities, you know, to change it, you need a supermajority. So then I guess the question would be, well, what kinds of decisions do we want to build in a serious status quo bias? And I think there, probably, there clearly are some. So for example, changing the constitution, we probably don't want to make that too easy. So we want a status quo bias. So two thirds of the house and Senate, three quarters of the states as a way to, to do that, you know, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm not sure what, you know, in terms of regular governing decisions about taxes, spending, entitlements, it's not clear like that one, how one would draw this kind of principled line. Um, I, so I guess I would say long-term systemic rules of the you know, political system, good thing to build in some super majoritarianism, I, I, I suspect, but everyday policy decisions, I think it's very hard to draw a principled distinction just because, um, you know, it, it basically imbues the status quo with some sort of heightened legitimacy when the status quo itself, you know, came about due to political processes and often disproportionate power of certain interests. Well, let's take a few minutes just to talk about uh, polarization, um, since that's another area you've worked in. Can you talk about, you know, again, the questions that you're trying to answer there and what have you found? Sure. Um, so I've been working on this project with Paul Pearson, my colleague at Berkeley, and um, actually started, uh, we started, you know, we did a conference uh, 2015 or 2016. So before President Trump, before Donald Trump was elected president on can Madisonian institutions survive polarization? And we brought in a bunch of scholars from across the country to, to think about that. Um, that question. And I think uh, really for a, a lot of us in my own thinking about, you know, when we, we asked about like, well, what would it take to disrupt our current system 
of polarization. And, and we all, I think, sort of reached for this kind of Madisonian, and that was some of the framing of this around Madison, was this idea of America as a kind of fundamentally decentralized kind of polity, pluralistic political system, lots of cleavages, and that what polarization is, is imposing one cleavage onto many. And so what's gonna upset polarization? What's gonna be when you have a political movement in the country that's advocating some issue positions that don't fit this alignment, sort of a cross-cutting cleavage essentially, and that that's what's gonna disrupt polarization, right? And, um, and our, I would say that's historically how our politics have worked. If you think about 1890 to 1910, it was the rise of progressive republicanism, basically advocating a different position on corporate regulation that upset that polarization. And you can find other similar kinds of instances. But then you get Donald Trump and you, here's this figure who's not attached to Republican orthodoxy, has some positions that are, seem to cross cut party lines on say trade and immigration. And yet he gets elected and governs. And what have we seen is only a kind of bolstering of polarization a and more intensification of polarization. And so Paul and I started thinking about that and, and you know, what, why is, is polarization fundamentally different today than it was before? And, and our answer is that it is. And one of the reasons is that polarization now exists in this very nationalized polity, whereas earlier periods of polarization were still taking place in a much more decentralized political system. And so our argument is that in earlier eras that were polarized, we had these meso institutions that provided openings for movements, groups, interests that cross-cut the party lines to disrupt that polarization. So we talk about state parties, we talk about uh, structure of groups, and we talk about the press. And all of these provided kind of mechanisms that you would then see operating in Congress. Because if you think about members of Congress with their local roots, they were in a sense conduits for this. So for example, in the early 20th century, as you get um, economic groups and social movements in districts or organized groups, that are um, pushing for the Republican Party to embrace these kinds of new positions on regulation, members of Congress with their local, representing their local constituency and coming from this state party representing those constituencies, were adapting to that and taking positions against Joe Cannon and overthrowing the speakership. Now in this much more centralized system where the state parties really are instruments of the national party, where the organized groups are each much more national in focus and lined up with one party or the other, where the press is much more you know, nationalized as well. We've lost that kind of, kind of opportunity for these cross-cutting cleavages to actually get expressed. And instead, when something comes up that could cross-cut the parties, the incentives are all to kind of incorporate it. And so view is that this is really something new and, um, and suggest a very diff different developmental trajectory to polarization, where before polarization in our country tended to be short-lived and very easily subject to, dis and subject to disruption. Now polarization is self-reinforcing and it's hard to see what's gonna undermine that. And our view is that really poses, you know, some real reasons to worry about the kind of stability of our political system, which was really premised on, designed for, this very decentralized kind of polity. So is this been driven by, you know, the internet and uh, the media and how the media has been captured by, you know, different party positions or is it 
driven by money or what's you know in, in the in the ability of the national parties to control the states through through money what's what are the driving factors behind that sure um so i, th I think there are several um factors that i do think at a, at a kind of broadest general level it is this uh nationalization of politics which is something dan hopkins and his he has a really great book on nationalization and in which he argues that um that there are multiple kinds of factors driving nationalization. I think one factor certainly is uh, changes in technology and communication. So the internet being the latest symptom or aspect of that, but, but it's a more kind of gradual process from the 60s and 70s that have, um, that, you know, have allowed, you know, with, you know, and this relates to money is like the thing about money is that now uh, members of Congress are raising much more of their money out of state, out of district, and that there's really this national network of funders, right? Liberal activists, conservative activists, donors that are giving based on kind of devotion to the ideological agenda team in a way that before you, if you're deriving your money from, you know, basically your local businesses, your local constituencies and so on, that's gonna lead you to focus on those much more local interests. Whereas if members now, the most successful members have a national constituency. So that's part of it. But I think that another very important force is the greater role of the national government in our lives. So the great increase in the 1960s and 70s in the role of the national government in a rise of a number of issues that get fought out at the national level and the heightened stakes, sense of stakes of our politics. So that groups increasingly see um, control of the national government as you know, kind of an existential kind of issue for them. And so, and then that in turn heightens their incentive to ally with one party or the other in a kind of enduring way. So I don't think, so it's not just technology, but I think it's a combination of technology and, um, and the growth of the national government of its centrality to our lives and the sense of stakes with especially the rise of all of these social and cultural issues that get fought out um, at the national level. And then when they're fought out at the state level, it's basically echoing these national party lines. Okay, so Eric, why don't we move on to our, our uh, list of questions that I ask every guest and uh, so that we can see where, where people kind of come out on the same question. Uh, are you ready to move on? Sure, definitely. So the first question is, uh, what do you think congressional representation should mean? So I think representation involves multiple dimensions. Uh, you know, there's policy representation, but there's also the idea of access and trust, a kind of dyadic relationship between members and their constituents. Uh, but then I, th I think third, I would add is this kind of interactive dimension that representation is really about kind of interactive deliberation between members of Congress and their constituents. Um, so um, in other words, the public opinion forms over time in, in, um, in response to congressional debate discussion, rather than existing out there in some ideal form to be represented, you know, in a, uh, prior to any of that. Right, so you, you, you uh, believe in this concept of the, the representative, part of his job is to make judgments on behalf of people instead of reflecting these so-called pre-existing beliefs yeah, judgments, but it should be in a, you know, ideally in a kind of conversation with their constituents, right, where, you know, the member is expressing their views and the constituents, you know, 
will update based on that and they may agree or they may disagree and then the representative has a responsibility to kind of come back at them and either defend their view or adjust their view accordingly. Uh, so, so it takes out place over time in a conversation rather than just one moment of either you, you know, fit their views or you don't fit their views. And what about representation as it relates to the future, right? You know, obviously the members elected by the current majority uh, or, or, or whatever, whatever percentage of the population decides to show up and gets them in office, you know, what about the future generations? What about um, those who will come in the future? Does the representative have a, have an obligation to them or is it just to the, those who are existing today? Um, well, I mean, I think in an, in a well-functioning political system, those who are living today, you know, knowing that either they or their friends have children who will have children, you know, can be at least encouraged to think about the future. And so again, I, my hope would be this interactive deliberative process would bring in longer term interests of the community as part of that. Um, you know, obviously that does not always happen. Maybe does not, you know, certainly doesn't happen as often as it should now, but I, I think that would be the aspiration. All right, so the next question is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that in an ideal world, you know, Congress would fulfill its multiple purposes for our diverse, complicated country. And so some of that would mean, you know, policymaking directly legislating, but some of that would also mean oversight, ensuring that current programs are operating well and also that the executive branch is kind of staying within its lane as much as possible. Um, and so, and then, and then third members are also coming from their districts representing their own constituents. And so they should be providing service to those constituents, casework, accessibility. Uh, so I, I really see all three of those things, uh, you know, expert policymaking, oversight and constituent services as, you know, the three main things Congress should be spending its time on. And so is that percentage in terms of thirds or do you have a, I, a, a different allocation? I mean, I don't, I guess I would have trouble putting a percentage on it. I think that it, you know, one thing is in a pluralistic Congress, you may want some different specializations, you know, so if some member, if you have some segment of members who are really good at oversight and investigations and see that as a way to make a name for themselves and contribute, um, and others are much more focused on policy and still, you know, I think that's, I think that's a fine thing, but I guess I'd kind of resist putting concrete percentages. I also think the balance that you need may depend on our circumstances. So after a period of a lot of presidential power gains, we may want more oversight and investigations, whereas in other periods, maybe policies, policymaking is more valuable. And how about the time allocation between DC and uh, home? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that you need presence in both. I think there is, you know, I think Richard Fenno's idea of a career arc where members often will spend a lot of time earlier in their careers in the district, but then ideally move toward at least somewhat of more of a Washington focus as they become more experienced and, and, and the constituency relation is kind of secured. I think that, you know, I think that can be helpful for Congress as an institution to have that kind of mix. Uh, but it's, you know, it's hard to prescribe that. So you don't have a percentage? I don't, I, I tend to resist uh, 
those kinds of formulas. And I would assume that since you haven't mentioned fundraising or campaigning, those are not in your allocation of time. Well, I mean, you know, certainly campaigning, you know, um, campaigning and fund, you know, is an intrinsic part of the institution and is part of this connection. Um, I do think that right now, you know, it's on members spend way, you know, much more time on those kinds of responsibilities, especially the fundraising than on some of the other things. And if there were ways to rebalance that, I think that's really hard to do if there were, but if there were ways to do that, I think that would improve the institution. So that you will come down to say that that aspect of their time allocation should be reduced and the others should be increased. If it were possible, I mean, how you write the rules to do that, I think is a, is a very complicated story, but I think that, um, you know, I think members themselves would tell you that it detracts from their ability to do the job. Right. Well, next question is, uh, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue uh, occur or be structured in Congress? Yeah. I mean, so my bottom line on this is, I believe, as a general matter in majority rule, that floor majorities, majority members should be able to make decisions in the end. And at the same time, the fundamental equality of all members in terms of being able to put items onto the agenda in some way, and where at least a substantial number of members should be able to force votes on matters that their constituents think are important. Like, I think that that is valuable. So, so the way I would think about structuring it is majoritarianism, but subject to a much more open agenda. Well, I think what you're referring to there is a set of rules to ensure that uh, individual members have a voice in the policymaking process through bills and moving them forward. But what about this concept of discussion or dialogue or one senator or congressman convincing another if that thing is actually possible? You know, where do you see that kind of discussion or trading happen? Or is it not something you think is important? It should all be mechanistic. No, I think it's important. I guess, so I would see that as, I think it's very rare that that's what happens on the floor. Now, not just now, but in the past, that's not where it happened. I think that having um, one way to think about it is one aspect of having a more open agenda would be that would be conducive to a committee system, since committees help put items on the agenda in that kind of world. Um, and it's in that kind of committee body where at least potentially you can have this kind of deliberation, give or take among members and uh, learning from one another. Uh, and so, I guess I would put the kind of premium there if there were ways to make committees more actual working groups as they have been in the past, and some still are today, um, I think that would be conducive to greater learning from one another, dialogue and so on. So you think it, the dialogue should happen in committees? Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, I think there's a role for floor debate, especially in terms of educating the public and engaging with the public, but I think in terms of changing members' minds within the institution and figuring out ways to get something done, I think that's much more likely to happen at a, at a committee level. Got it. Um, next one is, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Um, I guess I, going back, I mean, I, you know, I think there are a lot of issues or challenges facing Congress in, in that sort of broad time span. 
but again, I would say, um, you know, fundamentally, it's this matter of balancing party and individual member influence. And, and so I think um, my hope would be that there's, there would be some kind of rebalancing of that, that relationship over time. So back to the 80s. Back to the 1980s, yeah, which I never thought, you know, I certainly at the time would not have thought that that was an, you know, it's not that it's an ideal Congress, it's not that one agrees with all of its, or even most of its policies, but some sort of balance where parties are able to play, you know, have a role, they need to have a significant role in, in, in channeling demands and structuring the agenda, but where individual members are still having a you know, greater degree of autonomy. All right, next one is what book or article most shape your thinking uh, with respect to congressional reform? I would say the, the book that's had the most influence on me in thinking about reform in Congress more generally um, is David Mayhew's book, America's Congress, um, where what Mayhew talks about is how um, Congress has, the members of Congress have engaged in what he calls significant actions shaping our politics. And the way they've done that is really as individual actors trying to make an imprint on our politics, acting in a public sphere. And it's not that these members are just these brilliant entrepreneurs or dictators. What they're doing is shaping public debate. What members of Congress can do is fight to shape public understandings of issues and, and priorities for the nation. And I think that, you know, May's book gives a, just an important lens to think about how important it is for Congress to be an institution where the public looks at it and they don't just see members acting as, you know, members of partisan teams, but actually think that at least some members, some of the time are speaking as more in autonomous individuals representing ideas and constituencies, not just their own party. Right, well, my last question is just about your plans for the future uh, in terms of the research direction and the problems that you're looking at. Sure, um, so I, I think in my own work right now is really thinking about um, kind of prospects for democratic stability and reform in the United States in this very intensely polarized era. And this question of, you know, can we form a sustainable multiracial democracy? Are we gonna be at war with one another in a kind of continual way? What role can Congress play in trying to, you know, um, find solutions, build broader coalitions? Um, or alternatively, you know, and what many of us worry about is a kind of continual devolving into um, the kind of warfare in which basically shared commitment to democratic institutions really erodes. And so that's what I'm worried about and trying to understand and, and hopefully point towards solutions. All right, well, Eric's, thank you so much for joining us. Really, and really uh, a lot of insights and appreciate you sharing them with us. Right, thanks, Matthew. Great to be with you. Thank you.